0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 134, The Russo-Turkish War, Part 1. First, I want to thank our newest patron, who probably has my favorite name of anyone who's become a patron so far, at least the the name listed in Patreon, which is simply Joro Otpernik. So, big thanks, Joro, and greetings from me. Now, quick note, things are still on the old calendar here. The reason is that the main book I'm using to track these dates makes it very, very confusing to work out which, and it's, it's just much, much simpler to stick with the old calendar things. At some point, I'll make the switch, but my apologies for that. Anyways... Getting right into it. Now last time, we saw two sultans overthrown in the course of just a few months, as Ottoman reformers took control of the government. Meanwhile, the final actions of the April uprising dragged into the summer before finally being crushed by the Ottomans. Elsewhere, Serbia and Montenegro finally declared war on the Ottomans, only to see the Serbian military effort fall apart within months, as the newly formed Bulgarian Central Charitable Society attempted to gather support and men to fight with the Serbs. Ultimately, the great powers intervened to force a truce, and once that ended and Serbia was basically on the brink of collapse, Russia finally issued an ultimatum, which forced the war to pause yet again while representatives of the great powers gathered in Constantinople to work out a solution to the broader crisis. In the last weeks of 1876, as the conference was approaching its end, the Ottomans suddenly and shockingly issued a new constitution, granting some representation in government to ethnic and religious minorities, like Bulgarians, in an attempt to get ahead of any proposals the great powers might make after the Constantinople Conference to grant those minorities independence. And that's where we pick up today. The year 1877 is dawning, and Bulgarians who are in the know are no doubt eagerly awaiting the results of the Constantinople Conference. Now, The conference officially issued its declarations in the last days of the previous year. They issued a kind of ultimatum to the Ottomans, demanding Bosnia and Herzegovina become autonomous provinces, with a portion of Herzegovina being ceded to Montenegro. Remember, there is still an ongoing kind of low-key rebellion going on there. Bulgaria was also to be turned into eastern and western autonomous provinces under reformed administration. For now, the great powers had to wait for the Ottoman reply to their proposal. While they waited, January 3rd saw a convention between Russia and Austria Hungary signed in Budapest. It had 10 main points and 4 secret points. There's always a secret point. First, Austria Hungary agreed to remain neutral in the event Russia and the Ottomans go to war. In exchange, Austria Hungary was allowed to occupy Bosnia and Herzegovina with Serbia, Montenegro, and Novi Pazar, as a region still under Ottoman control, together acting as a kind of neutral buffer zone. Austria-Hungary also gave up its 1856 Treaty of Paris responsibilities towards France and Britain to maintain the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire. this two sides agreed that if the Ottoman Empire should collapse or otherwise lose its Balkan provinces, Russia would not Form any powerful Slavic countries which would disrupt the European balance of power. In addition, Russia would retake southern Bessarabia, which it had lost in 1856 after the Crimean War, Constantinople would become a free city, and Bulgaria, Albania, and Rumelia would become independent states. Greece, for its part, would be allowed to annex Crete and parts of Epirus and Thessaly. Now, along with the previous agreement signed between the two powers in Czechia last year, this document set Bulgaria's next century and a half into motion. But for now, it simply meant that Austria-Hungary would sit out any potential war, making it far more likely that Russia would be able to go to war with the Ottomans without foreign interference. Two weeks later, the Ottoman government finally formally responded to the agreements of the great powers from the Constantinople Conference. The answer was no. The Ottomans refused to accept the decisions of the conference to implement reforms. Now the ball was back in the court of the great powers, who would need to decide how to respond. Meanwhile, unable to hold out any longer, Serbia and Montenegro finally signed a peace agreement with the Ottomans, bringing an end to their disastrous war. The war effectively changed nothing for Serbia and Montenegro, except that Serbia in particular took huge losses, with around 5,000 dead and nearly 10,000 wounded, and around 15% of its entire population left homeless. Contemporaries wrote of the staggering number of war orphans as a result. This loss, importantly, reinforced the Russian perception that Serbia was not a reliable enough ally in the Balkans. This is in part why their agreement with Austria-Hungary allowed that power to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina, despite the fact that Serbia wanted the same territory, again sowing the seeds for much conflict later. Also in response, this is why Russia now saw Bulgaria as a better prospect for a critical Balkan ally. But again, they had already agreed with the Austro-Hungarians not to form a powerful Bulgarian state. So they're trying to kind of balance those things for now. But for the moment, the world had to simply wait and see how the great powers and Russia in particular would respond to the Ottoman refusal of the Constantinople Conference proposals. Now, in these heady months, several Bulgarian political newspapers were founded in Praila and Constantinople in particular. Also in the Ottoman capital, they were responding to how the Bulgarian Exarch, Antim I, had worked to raise awareness of the April uprising. In response to his actions, the Ottoman Minister of External Affairs stated to an audience of Bulgarian metropolitans that Antim I no longer had the trust of the Ottoman government. Two days later, an assembly of the Exarch Synod, in which Paniyat Plovdivsky and others gathered, they basically altogether proposed that Antim I should step down from his post as Exarch. However, before Antim could really respond, bigger events took over. On April the 12th, 1877, the Russian Tsar Alexander II signed a declaration of war against the Ottoman Empire. It was finally clear how Russia would respond to Constantinople's refusal. Some days earlier, the Russians had obtained Romanian permission to travel through Romanian territory for the attack on the Ottomans, and so... With this understanding, the Ottomans soon began bombarding Romanian towns from across the Danube. Negotiations between the Romanians and the Russians had been ongoing for months, with Romania very concerned about becoming a battlefield, understandably, they were still, you know, building up their economy in, in, in a pretty low state, and the Romanians were also very concerned about Russia potentially retaking southern Bessarabia. Mention mentioned Russia lost that territory at the Crimean War, and now it basically belonged to semi-autonomous Romania within the Ottoman Empire, and yeah, they were concerned about Russia's desire to retake it, which was obvious to everyone involved. Lastly, the Romanians were quite concerned about basically falling under Russian domination. However, by this point, Romania really felt that it had no choice but to allow the Russians to pass through their territory, though, honestly, in general, at this point, Romania showed very little enthusiasm for getting involved. They, I think, just felt they had no choice. Now, historian Misha Glennie describes this moment, writing, quote, The first three months of D- Abdul Hamid's reign witnessed the crushing of the Serbian army and finally, in December, the promulgation of the constitution, an event greeted with joy and celebration throughout the empire for a very short time it almost looked as though the ottoman empire had survived the transition from feudal absolutism to constitutional monarchy any such hopes were dashed when russia still fired by pan-slavism and the smell of ottoman decay declared war on the empire end quote. i think that that quote gets at something here that you know it's easy to skip over that but for a brief moment it did look like the ottoman empire was really going to kind of take its reforms to the next level and You know, had things uh, not occurred differently, Bulgarians would have had representation in the Ottoman parliament, which is a bit strange to imagine now, but that was very possible. But now it was war. The same day Alexander II declared war, the leadership of the Bulgarian Central Charitable Committee published a plea to the Bulgarian nation asking all Bulgarians to support the Russian army in any way they could, including by fighting. The call to arms was written in Bucharest and signed by many notable Bulgarians like Stefan Stambolov, Ivan Vazov, Kiryak Tsankov, and others. Two days later, the organization actually formally dissolved itself. Now, I couldn't find a specific reasoning for this, but I imagine it's because it now saw its goal as fighting rather than the same old organizing. Also on the same day of Alexander's declaration, notable Bulgarians in Constantinople assembled and decided that Antim I should resign as the Ottoman government had requested. Two days later, the Grand Vizier finally formally fired the Exarch, and, well, Bulgaria lost, the first person to fulfill that role. Antim was sent to exile in Ankara, and a week and a half later, a synod organized in Constantinople elected the Metropolitan of Lovich, a man named Yosef, as the new Exarch in a very close vote. But again, more consequential events were happening elsewhere a formal Bulgarian volunteer corps began assembling in the Russian city of Samara on the Volga River, ironically not far from the former capital of Volga, Bulgaria. The city of Samara also gave this corps a flag in the Pan-Slavic colors of red, white, and blue with a cross containing Mary along with Cyril and Methodius. Soon, the head of the Russian army, Knyaz Nikolai Nikolaevich, issued an order for his army to aid the gathering Bulgarians to fight in the war. Now, Finally, for the first time, Bulgarians were ready to fight the Ottomans on their own behalf with the backing of a major power. Sure, Bulgarians had fought with the Greeks in their war of independence, and they'd fought with the Serbs in their war of independence and several wars against the Ottomans, but now, for the first time, Bulgaria seemed to be the main focus of attention. True, it was a year too late to help the poor souls who had suffered and died in the April Uprising, but the prospect of independence no doubt made it all worth it. However, the outcome of the war was far from certain. In the Caucasus, the Russians were outnumbered 2 to 1 and had inferior artillery. In the Balkans, the Ottomans were well entrenched and controlled the Black Sea. And, well, as we saw in fighting against the Serbs, the Ottomans had excellent, very modern rifles. Now, Russia did outnumber the Ottomans in the Balkans, 300,000 to about 200,000, but one could argue that having to cross a river as formidable as the Danube and operate so far from their supply lines could easily even that score. On the other hand, having the backing of a large portion of the local population would certainly help the Russians. But not all Bulgarians were backing the Russians. You may have noticed that when the Ottomans decided to get rid of Antim I because of his actions aiding Bulgarian revolutionaries in effect, that, well, other church officials and prominent Bulgarians backed this move. And that trend continued because just weeks into the war, the Great Synod of the Bulgarian Exarchate issued a message to all the Eparchates announcing the devotion of the Bulgarian people to the Ottoman government. Another similar message was sent by Exarch Yosef I personally late in the month. So in a way, you can see this as being a little bit similar to how the Patriarchate behaved in the Greek War of Independence, where, yeah, you'd think that the, the you know Greek-dominated Orthodox church would back Greek independence. However, by that point, the Greek church was very deeply tied in with the Ottomans and benefited from its position within the Ottoman state. And it's very fairly, fairly similar for the Bulgarian exarchate, as well as these prominent Bulgarians living in Constantinople. For many of them, their prominence, their wealth, everything they have is really built on the existing structures of the Ottoman state. And yes, I mean, Bulgarians in a way kind of fought against the Ottomans in order to obtain church independence, but ultimately they needed the Ottomans to get that church independence. And so their actions, you know, were combating the Ottomans, but also courting them in a way, trying to convince them of their cause. So the Exarchate was backed backing the Ottomans, but the Russians likely weren't losing too much sleep over that. Bulgarians in Romania were now busy wishing the Russian army victory while Romania itself decided to declare its full independence from the Ottomans. The stage was now set. The proper fighting began on the 10th of June, when parts of the lower Danube squad of the Russian army crossed the river at Galatz and invaded northern Dobruja. Over the coming days, Russian artillery rained shells down on Danubian towns like Rusé, Nikopol, and Tutrakhan, as their army prepared to cross the river at several points. On June 15th, the Russian 14th Infantry Division successfully crossed the Danube at Svistov using a pontoon bridge. This was possible in part because Romanian naval forces had defeated the Ottoman patrol vessels and basically taken control of the river. Meanwhile, the Russian forces in northern Dobrojo were making pretty good progress, taking Badabag as they moved south. A week after the first crossing at Svishtov, the Bulgarian volunteer corps followed and finally set foot on liberated Bulgarian soil for the first time. Now, uh, a minor, you know, stepping out of the narrative for a moment, I highly 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 recommend you go to the uh, kind of blog post for this uh, post, this episode and look at the map because There's a lot of geography here, even having lived in Bulgaria for nearly a decade and being very familiar with Bulgarian geography, I had to constantly refer to places on the map just to make sure I understood where everything was happening. So definitely, definitely do that. It'll make all the things we're about to talk about make much more sense. Now, in general the quick Russian crossing of the Danube surprised the Ottomans because they had assumed the Russians would simply cross the Danube at its mouth and move along the Black Sea coast, heading straight for Constantinople. No surprise, that route would have faced a slew of well-defended Ottoman fortresses, and so the Russians decided to cross in the middle of the Danube and invade more through central Bulgaria instead. The Ottomans really didn't expect crossings at places like Svistov and Basically, their only nearby fortress or their only fortress on the river at this point was Vidin, which is pretty far away. Now, the Russian plan was to move the bulk of their forces across the river around this area and to divide it into three groups. The first would move to take Russe, the second to take Nikopol, and the third, led by General Gurko, would head straight south for Velikotornovo and cross the Balkan Mountains before the Ottomans could reinforce the passes and prevent this. Now, as we know from many, many, many instances mentioned in this podcast, the Balkan mountains are an excellent defensive point and could potentially allow the Ottomans to bottle the Russians up between the Danube and those mountains, as well as to create extremely powerful defensive positions in the few crossing points. Now, over in the Caucasus, by this point, the Russians, despite their numerical and equipment disadvantages, had managed to advance about 50 kilometers into Ottoman territory and lay siege to the important city of Kars. However, an Ottoman counterattack lifted the siege and brought the line to a relatively stable place for the time being. Now, in the Balkans, Russian forces had crossed at Svistov and then moved east towards Ruse, taking the town of Biala on June 23rd. Two days later, advanced Russian cavalry units entered Tronovo. Not realizing these were only small advance units and weren't really backed up by a substantial force, the Ottomans retreated from the city in a panic. Seeing an opportunity, General Gurko ordered his other forces to quickly take advantage of the situation, and by around 5 p.m. that day, Turnovo was in Russian hands. Almost exactly 484 years after the Ottomans took the city back in in 1393, it was liberated. Now, by this point, the Russians had taken a chunk of north-central Bulgaria from Svistov down to the foothills of the Staroponina, the Balkan Mountains. To the west, they were almost ready to make a full attack on Nikopol and were beginning to make some assaults around Plevin. For now, those two positions prevented any advance towards the west. To the south, 11,000 men under General Gurko were rushing towards the mountains to take key passes and prevent the Ottoman reinforcements from allowing their from blocking their own forces to move into Thrace. To the east, the Russians had advanced to a line just in front of Rusé, Razgrad, Schumann, and Omartag. It was impressive progress for only around two and a half weeks since the Danube had been crossed, but the Russians were now running into determined opposition and a few powerful fortresses. Now on the 1st of July, forward units of General Gurko's force finally reached key mountain passes in the Stara Gurko requested reinforcements to allow his troops to continue advancing towards Plovdiv, but this was denied the next day, and so Gurko focused on defending and reinforcing the passes for the time being. That same day, the Ottoman commander Osman Pasha left Viden with the bulk of his forces and headed towards Lovic, clearly seeing that Vidin was not going to be a focus of the attack and that Ottoman reinforcements would be needed around Lovic. As Osman Pasha headed that way, the Russians began a concerted attack on Nikopol and liberated it on July the 4th. This Russian force then was told to proceed south to attack Plevin. In Svishtov, the Bulgarian-born Neiden Gerov was appointed the temporary governor of Bulgaria in that town. Gerov was highly educated and had become a Russian citizen, And by this point, had actually worked in the Russian service, uh, the Russian Foreign Service, in Bulgaria for decades, so he was a uh, kind of obvious Bulgarian Russian candidate. Now, July the 5th saw Russian forces take the towns of Lovetch and Kazanluk, the first major settlements south of the Balkan Mountains to fall. That day also saw Russian forces make their first attack on the Shipka Pass from the north. There was supposed to be a coordinated attack from north and south, but Gurko's forces south of the mountains were delayed by about a day. As a result, the outnumbered Russians failed to take the pass and retreated to Gabrovo The next day, while the northern force rested, Gurko's southern force made their own unsuccessful attempt to take the Sheepka Pass. Now, farther to the north, the Russians moved towards the major fortress of Pleven and began building a more permanent bridge over the Danube at Svistlov to better supply their army. Likely realizing that they would soon face attacks from both north and south, the next day, the Ottoman defenders of Shipka pretended to consider surrender and used the lull in fighting to escape, leaving much of their supplies behind. At this point, the Russians now controlled three vital passes over the mountains. However, at this point as well, there were two major battles beginning. In pleven Osman Pasha and his forces entered the city and began to resist a Russian advance. Meanwhile, the defense of Shipka Pass was left largely to Bulgarian volunteers as the Russians focused their activities on Plevin. Meanwhile, Russian forces made more progress south of the mountains as the 9th Caucasus Dragoons took Starozgora and the next day liberated Karlofer. Soon, a force of Kazakh squads liberated Karlovo and were warmly welcomed by the inhabitants. Now, by this point, the Ottoman commander, Suleiman Pasha, was in Adrianople, and General Gurko proposed attacking his forces in Thrace before they could concentrate their strength. However, the Russian overall commander, Knyaz Nikolaevich, denied this request. He basically didn't want to kind of overextend their lines and be too aggressive. The following day saw intense fighting to the east and west, as the Ottomans retreated to Razgrad and managed to retake Lovac. Now, south of the Balkan mountains, General Goruko moved to take Novozagora, while the forces of Suleiman Pasha headed to Stara Zagora, with the goal of crossing the mountains to put even more pressure on the Russians, and thereby allow Osman Pasha's army in Plevin to counterattack there. Now, the Russians may have been largely successful up to this point, but Plevin was not far from Svistov, and a major counterattack there could potentially cut them off from their main supplies. Thus, it was essential to keep the Ottomans south of the Balkan mountains and to secure Pleven. These were becoming the two primary objectives. But Ottoman forces in Plevin had been hard at work digging trenches, preparing gun artillery positions, and building earthworks, transforming the rolling hills of vineyards around the town into a veritable fortress. The Russians mounted their first major attack on the city on July the 18th, taking some of the outer defenses. However, an Ottoman counterattack soon retook these positions, resulting in thousands of casualties on both sides. Things to the south weren't going much better, as Suleiman Pasha managed to retake Zagora. There, Bulgarian volunteers fought valiantly to defend the town, and then to ensure that the Samara banner, which, that kind of flag given to them by the Russian city of Samara, was saved. The banner was kept, but the town was lost and set ablaze by the Ottomans. Soon the Ottomans also retook Novozagora, further imperiling the Russian and Bulgarian forces south of the Balkan mountains. Now, at this point, guarding those three mountain passes was more critical than ever. By the end of July, the bridge at Svistov was complete, the new more permanent one, but the difficulties encountered at Pleven, along with the setbacks south of the Starplanina, meant that the Russians were growing more and more concerned about the progress of the war. Thus, Romania was invited to actively participate. Even though they hadn't tactically been at war with the Ottomans, oh they they sorry, they had technically been at war with the Ottomans since their declaration of independence. But in essence, you know, Russia wanted to pass through Romania because they kind of had to, but they didn't really want Romania as an active participant because this would mean that in the peace Romania would be able, be able to make demands, and Russia wanted to be the only one making demands. But the Russians now accepted they needed Romanian help and thus. Romanian troops began to cross into Bulgarian territory and aid in the attacks on Plevin. The Russians also requested that Montenegro, Serbia, and Greece get involved, but already seeing the war drag on longer than people had expected, they thought it'd be very quick. All three powers were very hesitant and decided to hold back and see how the war would progress. A day later, General Gorko's force south of the Balkans was dissolved as he moved to aid the fighting around Pleven. So, the Russians basically gave up any activities south of the Balkan mountains. The southern army of Suleiman Pasha now effectively controlled Thrace south of the mountains and began to prepare to make concentrated attacks on the Shipka Pass so it could then cross the mountains and attack the Russians north of them. Now, this is where part one of our coverage of the Russo-Turkish War will conclude. The Russians have made great advances but stalled. First, in front of Ruse and Razgrad to the east, where they are forced to Concentrate their efforts on defending the mountain passes to the south and taking Pleven to the west. In northern Dobruja, their forces that crossed the river right at the beginning of the war have slowly advanced south, but so far their activities haven't affected the broader strategic situation very much. And well, next time we'll see how things progress whether or not the Russians will be able to take Pleven, or whether an Ottoman counterattack will cut off their supplies. Whether the Ottomans will be able to push through Sheepka Pass and rush over the Balkan mountains and attack the Russians, or whether they will hold. It's going to be an exciting episode, so you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. You can check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and subreddit is linked in the episode description. You know all that good stuff, and I will see you in the next one.